This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the go-to destination for bold investing. The investment research platform trusted by 95% of the top 20 global private equity firms just got even better. Building on their solid reputation for expert insights, Tegas has expanded to become the first true all-in-one research platform. The new Tegas makes diligence faster, easier, and more convenient than ever before. Your Tegas license gives you access to over 70,000 expert transcripts, more than 4,000 fully drivable financial models, and exclusive data sets like company management checks, industry KPIs, hard-to-find non-GAAP data, and more. Tegas is the fastest way to learn about a public or private company and the most cost-effective way to conduct investment research, now all under one roof. Learn more and get your free trial at tegas.com slash Patrick. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down Olin Court. If you ever wondered when that high school chemistry class would come in handy, now is the time. Olin is a key player in industrial chemicals. But many of those chemicals are used in products that we interact with or see on a day-to-day basis. To break down Olin, I'm joined by Yinin Zhao from Xena Investment Management. Together, we cover the chloralkali market, what it means to be the lowest cost producer of a given commodity, and how Olin has shifted its business model and shifted its operational model to help sustain earnings through cycles. Please enjoy this breakdown of Olin Corp. All right, Enon, thank you for joining us on Business Breakdowns today. Olin is not a household name by any means, and I will admit to having absolutely no familiarity with this business prior to doing some research. So I think the best place to start is with a lot of background on the business, just to level set before we get into operational and financial dynamics. So maybe we could start with the very high level view, the 30 second elevator pitch for who Olin is and what they do. Sure. So I think like you, most of your listeners probably have never heard of Olin. The only consumer-facing product that Olin does have in its portfolio that some of your listeners may be familiar with is Winchester. And that's the brand under which Olin manufactures and sells ammunition. But outside of Winchester, Olin's portfolio primarily consists of non-consumer-facing industrial chemicals. And so it's certainly not a household name. I think what's underappreciated about Olin is that the industrial products that it does manufacture are really critical in the production of many goods and services that we use on a daily basis. And that list of applications ranges from everything, including plumbing and siding and windows and doors that are found in homes to the foam that's in mattress or furniture to the aluminum in your car to soaps and detergents. It's also used to help keep the water that we drink clean and safe. 
I think something like 90% of the tap water consumed in the U.S. is treated with Olin's products. So it's definitely not one of those companies that most people have never heard of, but that has a pretty meaningful impact on our lives every day. It reminds me of business breakdown that we did on DuPont in that way. Is it right to think about the investors that are looking at DuPont are likely the ones looking at Olin from a subsector perspective? So there may be some overlap, but as you probably learned on the DuPont podcast, Dow and DuPont merged, I think it was back in 2015, 2016. And then the idea of that merger was to separate those three businesses into three more focused businesses with Dow owning the commodity upstream part of the assets, DuPont owning the downstream specialty assets, and then Corteva owning the crop science and ag chemicals businesses. I would put Olin more in the commodity part of that value chain. And so it's more like a commodity chemical company like the Dow than it is like a DuPont. Yeah, I probably should have been specific about which part of that business because it looks a lot different today than it did when we did that breakdown. Maybe we can go back in time here. I know there is a rich history in terms of how everything came together. So maybe you can walk us through that history of the business. Sure, absolutely. So Olin has a really long history. In fact, the founding of the company dates back to the late 19th century. Franklin Olin founded at the time, it was called the Equitable Powder Company in 1892. And Equitable really started as a blasting powder supplier in Illinois. The primary customers were mining and construction companies. And over time, he expanded into various adjacencies, including ammunition manufacturing. I mean, he did that through the Western Cartridge Company. The Western Cartridge Company in 1931 acquired Winchester, which was a firearm manufacturer out of bankruptcy. Around the same time that Equitable Powder was founded, Matheson Chemical was founded in Virginia. And Matheson built the first chloralkali plant in the U.S. in Saltville, Virginia. And then they went on to build more chloralkali plants in various locations across the country, including Niagara Falls in upstate New York, Lake Charles, Louisiana, McIntosh, Alabama. And a lot of those early chloralkali plants were built either near salt deposits or near cheap sources of electricity. And this is because, as we'll get into later, salt and electricity are the primary feedstocks for the chloralkali industry. And so Niagara Falls was chosen because of access to cheap hydro, Saltville and McIntosh were both near salt deposits. And if you fast forward another 50 years from the founding of Equitable Powder in Matheson to 1954, that was the year when Olin, which is the, the blasting powder ammunition side of the company, merged with Matheson Chemical, a chloralkali business. And that really laid the foundation for what we know as Olin today. After that merger, the combined company continued to enter into adjacent chemical and industrial businesses. But over the years, they spun off or sold most of those businesses to pair back down to the chloralkali business plus a smaller, less core, but still very cash-generative Winchester ammunition business. And if you fast forward another 50 years to 2015, well, a particularly important transaction occurred that year as well. And that was when Olin acquired Dow Chemicals, chloralkali and chlorine derivatives businesses. And Dow had initially only wanted to sell part of the business, specifically to downstream chlorine derivatives businesses, now, Olin said they were interested, but only if 
DAO were to include a larger portion of the portfolio, including the upstream chloralkali assets. And ultimately, the deal that got done saw Olin getting the majority of DAO's chloralkali assets. And that transaction really was transformative for Olin because it made Olin the leading chloralkali producer in North America. And I think just as importantly, it added significantly to the number of different chlorine derivatives that Olin was able to produce. And that will become an important point as we dig into the change in operating philosophy at Olin. Yeah, it's always interesting with these businesses that have 100 plus years of history where they typically have these eras of becoming diversified conglomerates. And there's usually some relation to the product offering. But then over time, they start to actually divest a lot of those assets and become more focused. It certainly sounds like the case here where even the future transactions kept them focused in the chloralkali business. I do think I'll need 101 on chloralkali. So as much of a rundown as you can give in terms of what's happening within that market, the inputs and the outputs of how chloralkali is used, it's something I know of, but I don't know well. So whatever primer you can give us is going to be helpful here. Sure, absolutely. I think at a high level, it refers to the production of chlorine and caustic soda. And that's done through a chemical reaction involving salt, water, and electricity. So pretty simple when you put it that way, but much more complicated in practice. The two molecules that are produced, chlorine and caustic soda, are in fact co-produced. And they're co-produced from the same electrolysis process. Generally speaking, in all electrolysis processes, what you're doing is you're running an electric current to drive a chemical change that wouldn't naturally occur under normal conditions. And in this particular electrolysis setup, you're running an electrical current through a mixture of NaCl, aka salt, and water, H2O. And out of that chemical reaction, you get a reformulation of the NaCl and the H2O into three things. So Cl, which is chlorine, NaOH, which is more commonly known as caustic soda, sodium hydroxide, as well as a small residual amount of hydrogen. But people don't really talk about hydrogen that much because in most setups, the hydrogen is just released into the atmosphere. Now, generally speaking, because chlorine is difficult to transport and store due to its toxicity, chloralkali production is set up to produce chlorine with caustic soda treated as a byproduct. And so it's imperative to have outlets for the chlorine that you produce, since that can be a limiting production factor. In terms of the various outlets for chlorine, you can further process that chlorine into a range of derivatives, or you can sell it merchant. And the various chlorine derivatives all have various use cases. But the largest end market by far is residential housing and construction, where you'll find it in the form of PVC, and that's polyvinyl chloride, which is a type of rigid plastic that can be used to make, as I said earlier, vinyl siding, doors, windows, and pipes for plumbing. The other molecule that's produced is caustic soda. And caustic soda is generally not processed any further by the chloralkali producer. It's just sold as is. But it does have a wide range of industrial uses as well, including as 
a processing aid for the production of alumina, um, various other metals, pulp and paper, just to name a few industries. It can also be used as a raw material in general manufacturing for things like soap and superabsorbent polymers like diapers, feminine hygiene products, etc. As a result of the different end market applications for the two molecules, what's interesting about the chloralkali business is that one side of the molecule, chlorine, demand tends to be driven by housing construction, and the other side, the other molecule that's co-produced, caustic soda, is driven by general industrial activity. And the two can move together, but often move at different rates. I'm going to oversimplify here, but it sounds like there's similarities to a crude oil refining process where the oil is taken, the hydrocarbons are then refined through some process involving a lot of energy to create various types of fuels and some byproducts, which may or may not be used, jet fuel and just traditional gasoline. Is it safe to make that comparison just in terms of from a very high level, the overall process of what's going on? So I think that's a fair analogy for the chlorine side of the chloralkali production process, since the chlorine is often processed further into various chlorine derivatives, and you have some flexibility in terms of which derivatives chain to direct the chlorine molecules to in order to maximize value. But the degree of flexibility really varies from producer to producer, depending on their setup. And I'm going to ask the question that I assume a lot of listeners will be wondering themselves, which is, is this chlorine ever used within a residential pool or for any pool purpose? Or is that a completely separate chlorine? It is. That's right. This is the type of chlorine that would be used in a pool. I'm not sure that you would be buying it directly from a brand name that Olin produces, but they'll be selling it to someone who produces chlorine that might end up in your pool. I think we could talk a little bit about how that operation actually works and specifically for Olin, how do they access the chloralkali? How is it transported in terms of making its way through that process and then distributed to whoever the buyer is, who I assume is the manufacturer of that broader manufacturing process? Can you just go through a little bit of what that looks like in terms of the operations and which part Olin is controlling versus what's outsourced and how the dollars are exchanging hands in this particular value change? As I mentioned, the two key feedstocks are salt and electricity. When Matheson in 1890, I think it was 97, built the first plant in Saltville, Virginia, they built it in Saltville because there was a salt dome in Saltville, so there's cheap access to salt. I think the same with Macintosh. In Niagara Falls, I believe they have access to salt that's maybe 50 miles away. So you want to be close to a source of salt. And ideally, you want to have a stable, steady, and cheap source of electricity. Post the Dow acquisition, Olin, in addition to the legacy Matheson sites in Niagara Falls, in McIntosh, and they also have a site in Charleston, Tennessee, they acquired two large plants in the U.S. Gulf Coast, in Plaquemine and in Freeport. The interesting thing about the U.S. Gulf Coast is that it's actually the most cost-advantaged region in the world due cheap salt and cheap electricity. And the reason for that is that really goes back to the shale revolution in the early 2010s because of 
a revolution in the way we're able to access shale formations and drill oil and gas, natural gas became really abundant in the U.S. And most of the electricity that we consume in the U.S. is generated from natural gas. And so Olin, at some of their sites, they have cogen facilities that they own and operate uh, producing electricity for their plants. And some sites, they have access to the cogen plants, a site partner that provides a source of electricity. And in other regions, they are able to buy electricity from the grid. The grid is strong enough to support the quantity and volume of electricity that they need. And then with salt, the U.S. Gulf Coast, and particularly in Texas and Louisiana area, there are lots of underground salt formations that Olin has access to with very abundant sources of that salt. Beyond Olin's portfolio, there are a lot of other companies in the U.S. that are also concentrated in that region, like Westlake, like Oxychem, Formosa, Shintech. And then in terms of what they produce, as I said, there's a wide range of products that they can produce. And depending on what it is, the distribution and the end customer is different. I think what's unique about Olin versus their peers is that unlike their peers, Olin is not as forward integrated into the vinyls chain, which is the PVC chain. In fact, before the Dow merger, Olin was somewhat of a one-trick pony, and it only sold chlorine in the merchant market or in the form of hydrochloric HCl and bleach. Following the Dow merger, it acquired a more diversified chlorine envelope with the addition of some vinyls exposure plus some epoxy resin exposure and some chlorinated organics exposure. As I said, depending on what you're selling, the distribution is different. If it's merchant chlorine, Olin is primarily shipping that via rail car into the interior of the country. And then that's get, getting consumed by industries like TiO2, MDI, and TDI, which are two of the precursors used to make various types of foam. And then the HCL and bleach are typically sold to municipalities who use it for water treatment. That's bleach. HCL is sold primarily to oil, natural gas, and steel producers. And then on the vinyl intermediate side, Olin doesn't actually produce any PVC. It does produce some vinyl intermediates like EDC or VCM, which are the precursors that end up becoming PVC. For EDC, Olin is actually the world's largest merchant producer. Most of the rest of the world's EDC is forward integrated into BCM and then ultimately PVC. And then Olin does also produce some VCM to one large customer, that's Shintech. And then on the epoxy business, again, when Olin reports it, they report epoxy as a separate business, but it's really just another chlorine derivative. And so I would think of it as one of several options that Olin can direct chlorine to. And the epoxy side of things, they can choose to sell the molecule upstream in the form of epichlorohydrin or process it further downstream into epoxy systems and formulations and then sell a more processed version of that to customers. Can you give the quick snapshot just in terms of percentage of whether you measure by revenue or if they break it out by EBITDA, even better, when it comes to the chloralkali business, the ammunition business, they split out the epoxy business, just what the snapshot is for each of those businesses within Olin? The answer to your question is it kind of depends. 
because it's a cyclical commodity business, at the peak of the cycle, the cyclical commodity piece is going to account for a larger percentage of your EBITDA because you're at peak earnings. And at the trough of the cycle, it's going to account for a lot less versus the ammunition business, which is comparatively much more stable. 2021 and 2022 were both peaky years for the chloralkali business. And each of those years, the chloralkali business accounted for over 80% of the EBITDA. But in a trough year, it's going to account for much less than that. Okay. And for context, how low would that possibly go from 80% to 50%? Or I know you're not going to be exact in terms of those forecasts, but I'm just wondering how cyclical this cyclical commodity actually is. Let's just do some quick mental math here. Winchester will probably end the year at around 250 to 300 million of EBITDA and total EBITDA for the biz for the entire company is probably close to 1.4 billion this year. So they'll still 70 to 75%. But in this case, it's just because the chloralkali business dwarfs Winchester in terms of EBITDA contribution. But going from close to 90% to 70% is a big swing for the commodity piece. Absolutely. And that can bring us back to one of your earlier points, just in terms of how they involve themselves in the overall value chain and not being as integrated with the vinyls business. How does that shift the profile? I assume it just gives more pure commodity exposure, but is there anything else that goes into that thinking in terms of through the cycle, normalized rates of return and how you as an investor would think about them being more or less integrated with some of the end markets? What's interesting, I'm sure we'll get into the change in operating philosophy later, but before 2020, I would say Olin's business was always more levered to the fortunes of the caustic side of the business. That was because it was not as forward integrated into PVC like its peers. What you had was a situation where when housing and construction were strong, PVC demand would be strong. And because PVC demand was strong, there would be a pull on chlorine. And so all of Olin's peers who are more integrated into PVC on the chlorine side of the business, they would produce as much material as they could. And as we talked about earlier, what's unique about the chloralkali process is that it's a co-production process. And so when you are producing for chlorine, you also have to produce caustic soda. And what ended up happening in that type of environment is there would be excess caustic soda. And because Olin's fortunes were more levered to the caustic side of the business, they would benefit from some of that chlorine strength, but it was not more than offset, but it was offset to an extent that wasn't optimal for their setup. Even in a year like 2018, where the industry was going through a peak, Olin's EBITDA topped out at around $1.3 billion. And I think this was a key insight that Scott Sutton, who took over as CEO, had in 2020 when he changed the operating philosophy. Yeah, there's some similarities, again, to tie back a little bit to the crude process of associated gas being produced or even NGLs, where 
it can depress the price of those commodities because they are just simply being produced along with the crude oil. And that can have a massive impact on some businesses that have that diversified exposure and aren't pure play crude oil producers. Let's get into Scott Sutton, what he's done, where he came from prior to Olin and some of the changes that he made for the business. He mentioned the change in operating philosophy. What did he do to adjust for that impact that you were mentioning before? Let me just back up one or two years to give some context before Scott joined. So as I said earlier, there was a cyclical peak in the industry in 2018. Olin earned about $1.3 billion, which is good, but not great. 2019 was a tough year for Olin. That was the year when the stock hit our radar screen and we learning about Olin. 2019 was a weak demand year for caustic, just driven by general industrial economy weakness. As I said, Olin has always been historically more levered to the fortunes of caustic. And so caustic being weak was not a good macro situation for them. The one thing that I forgot to mention earlier was that the reason why a lot of U.S. chloroquine producers are forward integrating the PVC is not just because we have cheap access to electricity, but we also have access to cheap ethylene. And the way you make PVC is by combining chlorine with ethylene. And ethylene, just to give your listeners another primer on another commodity chemical, is a basic building block molecule that is produced from various fossil fuel derivatives. The marginal producer in Europe and Asia is producing that ethylene from naphtha, which comes off the refinery, and as a result is tied to the price of oil. And then U.S. producers, because of the shale revolution, have primarily shifted from naphtha to ethane, which is a natural gas liquid that is a byproduct of shale oil and gas drilling. And because of that, ethane is generally tied to the price of Henry Hill natural gas prices. And on a barrel of oil equivalent basis, U.S. natural gas is a lot cheaper than the Brent oil that Europe and Asia producers are using as feedstock. And so for that reason, the ethylene that we produce in the U.S. Gulf Coast is also a lot cheaper. U.S. PVC producers just have a huge cost advantage. And so in 2019, even though caustic was weak, the PVC producers were still producing, still running their chloralkyl assets like crazy to take advantage of the cheap ethylene cost position of the U.S. This drove a huge oversupply in caustic that resulted in a decline in Olin's EBITDA from $1.3 billion that they earned in 2018 to just $900 million in 2019. Then what happened was COVID hit in 2020. Because the global economy shut down, your demand for Olin's products, especially on the caustic side, fell off a cliff. And 2020 was a really tough year for them. I think their EBITDA fell from the 900 million in 2019 to just over 600 million. Now, I think the other unexpected event in 2020 that happened in addition to COVID was a change in leadership at the company. Scott Sutton became CEO in 2020. And upon taking the reins, he instituted a major change in the operating philosophy at the company. Essentially, he flipped the old model on its head and he switched to a model in which Olin would manage to the weak side of the molecule, as he called it. Essentially, it was a value over volume strategy. And he wasn't entirely new to the business. He'd been on the board for a number of years. 
So he had an idea of, I think, how this operating model could work. And he had also previously run the acetic acid business at Selenese in a similar fashion. I think what made chloralkali uniquely suitable to this operating model was the fact that the chloralkali industry, unlike the acetic acid industry, and for that matter, most other commodity chemical value chains, produces, as we've said multiple times, two different molecules through one process operating at one operating rate. And if you are always managing to the weaker of the two molecules that are co-produced, in other words, only producing as much product as there is demand for the weaker of the two, effectively, you're undersupplying the stronger side of the market, can therefore push pricing in that market to enhance value. And at the same time, instead of pushing excess product into the weaker market, which would depress margins even more, you're preserving value by not oversupplying the weaker market. And so it's a win-win. On paper, it makes a lot of sense from that 10,000-foot view, but executing is pretty complicated. Under the hood, what you're essentially having to do is every day determining Olin's participation rate based on a three-step decision tree. The first decision node is the simplest, and that's, is caustic cheaper or is chlorine cheaper or weaker? And once you determine that, then you set your production to the weaker side of the market. The second decision node on the chlorine side of things is, which chlorine derivatives chain do I want to participate in? Is it epoxy? Is it, do I want to produce more merchant? Do I want to produce more vinyls intermediates? Or do I want to produce more chlorinated organics? And then the final step is determining how far up and down each of those chlorine derivatives chains do you want to manufacture? Do I want to let the epoxy out at epichlorohydrin or do I want to process it further into epoxy systems? So essentially just became a very simple volume over value, low cost commodity strategy to a much more complex commercial model where you're moving with more agility to maximize the overall value of the chloralkaline molecule. It's basically an interesting optimization problem. Super interesting. The amount of variables that are going into that, just fascinating to me. And I want to unpack a few of those. From the start, the idea that you're going to push less volume into the cheaper market, therefore, you should see some improvement on price. How confident have they been that that optimization is actually going to play out to their benefit? I think you can make the case as well that you would want to push onto the market. And if you're the low cost producer, push out some of the higher cost competitors. But in this approach, you might actually be letting them survive. In terms of the early results, how have they proven to be just in terms of implementing this strategy to success and not losing share or whatever it might be from competitors? We asked ourselves that same question when Scott took the reins, because I think the knee-jerk reaction is, if it's so simple, why hasn't it ever been done? I think the simple answer to that is, before the Dow acquisition was always not a bit player, but one of the smaller players in the US market. But the Dow transaction really changed that. It became the 800-pound gorilla in the market. And the US market is pretty consolidated, even though the global industry, chloralkaline industry, is somewhat fragmented. 
But within the U.S., you really have the four large players accounting for 85 to 90% of market share. And for the U.S. markets versus the international markets, do exports play a role? Is it something that when you factor in export costs and the transportation associated with that, it is a global market that operates globally? There is global trade. I would say the products that are traded where you see the most global trade are PVC because it's easy to ship resin or little pellets and maybe epoxy and caustic soda. But even with something like caustic, the U.S. market is at any point in time exporting 3 million tons, but only importing a couple hundred thousand tons. So there's not that much liquidity, certainly not to the extent that oil is globally traded. Then there are certain things like merchant chlorine, for example, that you just can't ship long distances. Those are all reasons why there are some parts of this industry um, where it is a global market and other parts where the local regional dynamics matter more. To answer that question, I think the model worked better in a more accelerated timeframe than I think anyone anticipated, including Scott and the management team at Olin. And if we just look at what happened in 2021, from a macro perspective, the macro backdrop in 2021 was a suboptimal one for Olin, historically speaking. I talked earlier about how when housing demand is strong, that's not a good setup for Olin because there's a pull on PVC and then there's a pull on chlorine and that creates an oversupply of caustic, which they had historically been more levered to from a financial results perspective. Despite that, in 2021, Olin generated $2.5 billion of EBITDA. And that's the most EBITDA that they ever generated. And I think you can attribute a lot of that success to the strategy pivot. Basically, instead of chasing the strong side of the molecule, which was chlorine at the time, and oversupplying the caustic market, Olin exercised restraint limited production to the demand that it saw on the weak side of the molecule, which is caustic, and that preserved value in the weaker market. And at the same time, made a strong chlorine market even stronger. Although they were not benefiting on the vinyl side of things, they have a very dominant position in merchant chlorine, and they were able to exercise pricing power in that market. And in 2022, I think you saw another year where they generated close to $2.5 billion of EBITDA again. Two years where they generated levels of EBITDA that were almost 2x the last cyclical peak in 2018. It's impressive for a business that is 2x the cyclical peak, but between then also was down 50%. And yes, COVID played a role in that too. But to see EBITDA drop to, did you mention $600 million? In 2020. Yeah. A little over 600 million. Yeah. is absolutely incredible. Is the expectation that this will make EBITDA less cyclical? So when you think about the next potential trough, 2021 was a non-optimal period of time. But I'm just wondering the test in terms of the downside risk to this model. What does that look like? So we're going through it right now. The first half of 22 was a very strong year. I think you started to see the economy slow down in the back half of the year and into this year. So in April of 2022, the new management team led by Scott put out for the first time a new estimate of what they think trough economics would look like. 
under this new operating model. The recession case range that he put out was one and a half to two billion. So big numbers relative to prior troughs. And so as you can imagine, that 1.5 to $2 billion earnings corridor was met with a lot of skepticism. And that's natural because in any cyclical commodity business, I think investors tend to anchor to historical precedent. And what Olin was selling was essentially a this time is different story. The base rate of those playing out as advertised is fairly low. This year is not over, but it's looking like EBITDA will come in just below the one and a half to two billion corridor at around 1.4 billion. So something for both bulls and bears to point to, to take a victory lap. I think from our perspective, whether it's 1.4 or 1.5 billion doesn't matter so much as the fact that it is a much higher level of earnings than in prior troughs. And more importantly, the free cash flow is also much stronger, which gives you a lot of downside protection. So just to give some context, this year, they should be able to do something like on that 1.4 billion of EBITDA, close to 700 million of free cash flow versus in 2020, EBITDA was a little over 600 million and free cash flow was, I believe, a little over 100 million. If we just look at that in nominal terms, I think that's 500 million-ish in terms of the CapEx spend in that scenario. Where are those dollars going or is it some other use of cash in terms of taking the EBITDA conversion towards free cash flow? They have since 2020, I think maybe the end of 2021, or maybe it started in the beginning of 2022, deployed most of that free cash flow. Or in 2021, they did a lot of deleveraging. And so the balance sheet is carrying a lot of leverage because it wasn't very free cash flow generative in 2020 nor in 2019. So they paid out a lot of debt in 2021. In 2022, they really ramped up stock buybacks and share repurchase activity in a very meaningful way. We were very supportive of that because if you looked at the free cash flow yields, even on a normalized basis, the stock always traded above a 10% free cash flow yield. And even this year on trough free cash flow, it's trading at about a 10% trough free cash flow yield. And so we don't disagree with the management and the board's decision to allocate that capital. Essentially, you're investing in your own shares at a 10% free cash flow yield. And it's probably hard in this environment to find a more attractive use for that capital. It's a 10% trough free cash flow yield, a much higher free cash flow yield on normalized free cash flow. Yep, that makes sense. And I think you've referenced the EBITDA metrics. What has the margin profile look like for the business? I'm assuming there's this expanding margin that's playing the role in terms of the EBITDA growth. But what was that historically and what does that look like now? And whether you look at it per segment or at the overall business level, whatever you think is easiest. When I forecast business like this, I don't really think about it on a normalized EBITDA margin basis because the earnings power at any point in the cycle is dictated by supply and demand. And even if your costs are high, you should be able to pass those on if the supply demand dynamic is in your favor. But just to make it more apples to apples to other businesses, say at trough, EBITDA margin on a consolidated basis is probably anywhere between 10 to 15%. And at peak, probably between 25, 30%. 21 and 22, we're both in that 25 to 30% area code, but 23 is going to be lower than that. I'm also curious just about the 
financial results relative to expectations. And some businesses are notoriously hard to forecast. And when they report results, you'll see 20 to 30% in either direction. I think US refiners are very popular for that specifically. It's just incredibly difficult to forecast what a quarter is going to look like. How does that compare to Olin? Are you getting that same type of volatility in terms of the actual results? I may not be the best person to answer that because we obviously track the quarterly earnings calls, but our investment horizon is typically anywhere between three to five years. And there are some stocks that we've held for much longer. I think the way that the lens that we see Olin is more on a normalized mid-cycle basis. And the reason we get involved in investments like this is because we think the stock is cheap on a normalized mid-cycle basis. And so whether or not they miss or beat a quarter is not super important to us. And for that reason, I don't spend a lot of time refining my quarterly forecast. No, I think what does matter is that they have the balance sheet resiliency to make it through tough conditions like the conditions that we're going through now. And so such that if they do have a particularly tough quarter, they don't have to do something dilutive from a shareholder value perspective. But outside of that, I don't have a really strong view of what this quarter or next quarter will look like. There always felt like there was something silly about forecasting quarters for refiners when there was evidence that it didn't do much good. And even if they beat by a massive amount, it might not matter depending on what the guidance was. The other question I had is, does this market have futures activity, hedging? Is that something that's common? We got into the weeds in terms of changing daily operations to adjust the price. The other option that would be out there is to find some type of financial instrument that would allow you to hedge. So is there a futures market or is it almost entirely exposed to spot? On the revenue side of things, there is a spot market and then they also sell some product on contract. For a business like Ola, in general, I think our view would be that if you have an advantage cost curve position, you should probably have as much spot exposure as you can in order to capture the through the cycle economics. I think Olin historically probably had a higher mix of contracted sales to spot sales than it does currently. And I think that's intentional. I think Scott's view is that you want to have the flexibility to have as much of your portfolio sold on a spot basis as possible in order to maneuver with agility depending on rapid changes in the marketplace. If too much of your volume is contract, then you'll be hamstrung and won't have that flexibility to move with agility. They do do some hedging on the cost side. So I think I believe they're for their cogen plants where they operate, you need natural gas for that. And I think they do some hedging one year out. The Winchester business a small piece of the overall pie, but still worth mentioning and tapping on a little bit. How would you view that business within the overall Olin pie in terms of what value it provides to them? Is it something that they would ever potentially divest? How important of a role does it play? And how much investor attention does it get from someone like you? When we first looked at the company in 2019, it felt like to us Winchester was a potential candidate for divestment because it was non-core. 
I think since then, there's been a shift from at the board and management level. It's not an area where they're investing heavily. And so it's non-core from that perspective, but it is very cash generative asset where Olin has a pretty strong position in the market. And so I think they want to hold on to it for that reason, mainly because there aren't that many good divestment options for this business. If you just look at where the public comps trade, it's not a particularly attractive alternative option from a shareholder perspective. I think Winchester often comes up in investor conversations because there are lots of people who, from an ESG perspective, can't own Olin because of the ammunition exposure. I think the question that you have to ask yourself is, would the counterparty to whom Olin divests the business be a better steward of Winchester or of any ammunition business? Or would the world be better off with Olin owning Winchester and overseeing that ammunition business? I don't know that I have the answer to that question, but I think it's a fair question to ask. But that's the context in which you often hear about Winchester. Yeah, I can certainly understand if the divestor options are divesting this business at an extremely unattractive yield to the seller, 20% free cash flow, and you could actually just take that cash flow and invest it right back into your own business. That's the accretive option. And I think between the operations and perhaps the overall company management, they they show to have a knack for being thoughtful about where pricing is in the markets, whether those be the chlorine operational markets or something like their own assets and their own businesses. I want to transition a little bit. I think we've talked a lot about the change in the operational side of the business, the opportunity that exists within this business. I think we've hit on some of the risks, but maybe we can dive into those a little bit. And one of them is a name that we've been mentioning quite frequently in terms of having a big impact on the business and that departure. So can we jump on that specifically, Scott Sutton announcing a departure, what that means for the business, where he's going, and how you see it? Yeah, about a month ago, Olin announced that Scott would be leaving the company before the end of the first half of 2024. Both Scott and the board have underscored that this was a mutual agreement that did not result from any friction between the two sides in terms of the go-forward strategy, and the board doesn't have any intention of changing the strategy or the operating model that Scott put into place when he became CEO. I think from our perspective, we have no doubt that there has been a real cultural shift within the company three years into Scott's tenure. But it still felt like Scott was a very important piece of the puzzle, holding everything together at this juncture in the journey. So the announcement of his departure was definitely a surprise and for sure, I think a loss for the company. I think from a sentiment perspective, it's going to once again, renew doubts and questions about Olin's ability to execute under the new operating model and deliver a higher level of earnings through the cycle. The stock was down 10% the day that this was announced. And I think that reflects that concern in the market. I think some reasons to be optimistic exist. And I think they do have a senior leadership team in place that is fully on board with the new model. And they want to prove the ability of the new model to deliver strong cash flow through peak and trough operating environments. And 
but it does feel like this culture and this way of thinking about running the business has permeated the broader team. That makes you feel that the business is in capable hands, even post Scott's departure. In that context, I think the most important thing at this point is to identify a successor who can step up and fill those big shoes and continue what Scott started. He's staying on to help the board identify his successor. So those are some mitigating factors to consider. Did you mention where he is going? He doesn't have another job lined up. Yeah, certainly interesting, especially looking for that successor. And it's always hard to think that there can be one person that really has the secret sauce in any given industry. I have been proven wrong on that before, seeing where certain operators are that much better. To that point, Matt, what I would mention is that when Scott took over and announced this new strategy, we spoke to a couple of ex-Olin employees. And what they told us is that they were 100% on board with the new strategy. But they said Scott didn't come up with this idea on his own. There were individuals within the organization who wanted to run the model this way. And I think at the time, Olin maybe just wasn't ready. It took an external person with the commercial courage, I think, for lack of a better word, to go in there and institute that change. Scott is certainly a very capable person, but I don't think that he's the only person who can effectively execute this new operating model. Yeah, it's a great example of where the voting machine versus weighing machine will come into play, having the stock down. 10% 10% on announcement certainly reflects well, and I'm sure makes him feel better, you know, short term, but over the long term, you can see how business runs. What else would you point to just in terms of risks that you keep in mind for the business? I think the CEO departure is probably the biggest near term concern. What we worry about over the medium to longer term is just inevitable supply response. Although the current supply-demand outlook is fairly benign for the chloralkali industry over the next four to five years, You know that could certainly change if market participants recognize that the economics of the industry have structurally improved. And likewise, if Olin pushes too aggressively from a pricing perspective in particular products, you know, there is a potential risk that some customers start to seriously consider back integrating into chlorine on their own. They don't have to build a world-scale chloralkali facility to do that. They could build something smaller, and that wouldn't take as much time to build. You touched on it before, but when it comes to ESG, whether it be the Winchester business or just having some tie to chemicals, those can go in a variety of different directions. How does the business score or rank? And is it a big overhang on the valuation of the business? From an ESG perspective, I think the biggest longer term issue is carbon abatement. Because it's a energy intensive business, it has meaningful scope one and two emissions. And if the world wants to reach 2050 net zero targets, industries like chloralkali are going to have to figure out a way to consume less fossil fuels both as feedstocks and as a source of energy and power. You know, I think the path to net zero is still somewhat unclear for a lot of these industries. But what I would point out about the chloralkali industry is that it's starting with a bit of a head start versus its peers. 
as we discussed earlier, PVC is a big ad market for chloralkali, right, on the chlorine side. And I believe it's the third most commonly used plastic polymer behind polyethylene and polypropylene. And if you compare PVC to other polymers like polyethylene and polypropylene, what's unique about PVC is that it's only 40% fossil fuel. The other 60% is salt. And that's because you start with the electrolysis of salt and water as feedstocks as opposed to fossil fuel derivatives like ethane and naphtha, which are 100% fossil fuel. You can make a case that where there's fungibility, right, switching to PVC, you're already starting with a lower carbon footprint. And I think the other thing that I would point out is that if carbon capture and storage gains momentum, the geology of the U.S. Gulf Coast with its depleted oil and gas reservoirs underground and the various salt caverns and the expertise that already exists in that region around enhanced oil recovery, that sets up the region well. And I think it could be a real competitive advantage for the region's petrochemical producers. On valuation, I think you've referenced looking at this business at free cash flow yield, whether it's normalized trough, but just framing it with that methodology. Is there anything else you use from a multiple perspective, just thinking about how different investors would think about this business and what you would use and think about as the norm here? I like to think of this business on trough and mid-cycle free cash flow yield. I think in general, we're somewhat unique in that we think about all of our investments on a price to normalized earnings basis. And we're agnostic as to how that cash flow or earnings is generated. And so we buy stocks that are in the cheapest quintile on a price to normalized earnings basis. We're pretty disciplined about selling them when they reach the median of the universe. Olin is obviously still very, very cheap from our perspective on a normalized earnings basis and normalized free cash flow basis. It is somewhat unique in the sense that I think there are very few investments where where the stock has tripled and where we still retain a pretty sizable position in the stock. But I think that kind of speaks to the excellent job that the new management team has done in terms of delivering a structurally higher level of earnings power. I know you have a rich history at your firm. I would love to see a list of companies that have tripled that you've held on to. It would be an interesting case study of different investments, but I won't hold it to that. We close out the discussions trying to look for lessons that you learn from this business that you might be able to apply elsewhere as an investor. Is there anything that stands out here in terms of this business and the research that you've done? Let me caveat what I'm about to say by first acknowledging that the final chapter in the Olin story has yet to be written. But assuming this change in operating philosophy ultimately does prove to be successful and the earnings are structurally higher through the cycle, then I think there are a couple of important lessons. From an operating perspective, the Olin story really underscores the importance of questioning conventional wisdom in any business to avoid anchoring bias, even in a business as boring and mature as chloralkali. And I think in Olin's case, even though the scale and the capability of the company really was transformed following the Dow merger, 
And even though there were individuals inside the organization agitating for change in operating philosophy, it took an outsider, Scott, to shake things up and try something different. From an investment perspective, there are two important lessons. One is that I think the Olin story really underscores the importance of continuously revisiting your investment theses and having the humility to recognize when things have changed because the world we live in is very dynamic. And there were a lot of sleepless nights when COVID hit and we had to ask ourselves if Olin really had as much downside protection as we thought. Similarly, when the strategy shift was playing out, our initial reaction was, let's blow out of this thing before the cycle turns again. As I said earlier, even though we've trimmed the position along the way, we still own a pretty sizable position because we've re-underwritten the thesis and still think the stock price undervalues the mid-cycle earnings power of the business. The second lesson, and just for some context, I trained at Columbia Business School in the value investing program under a lot of great investors. And at Columbia, there was a real focus on identifying companies with sustainable competitive moats that can compound value over time. I think a lot of value investors into that quality value camp invest that way. And I have a lot of respect for that school of investing, but I think it does tend to overlook certain segments of the market, including cyclical commodity businesses. And I think what Olin demonstrates is that there can be, and there are great investment opportunities, even in cyclical commodity industries, so long as you're starting with a strong cost position, a resilient balance sheet, and an understanding of where you are in the capital cycle. I think that point, typically it's hard to associate something that's tied into the commodity business with value. But when you pair that with what you mentioned before in terms of a new way of operating a very old business can be a really interesting opportunity. So Enon, it has been a pleasure. I have learned a ton throughout this conversation on a bunch of categories I knew very little about. So thank you for joining us on Business Breakdowns and giving that excellent breakdown on Olin. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 